within the highest idea of knowing. So there's a kind of a theistic agnosticism, if you will, that the Gaudiya Vaishnavism is really putting forward. It clearly says that the Brahman, which is a general term to speak about the absolute, the great, the unlimited, it's unknown and unknowable. And when we speak about it in terms of Krishna, as he speaks about it himself here in this chapter as the fullest manifestation of that Brahman, we find him to be, as I say, as I said earlier, somewhat unknowing, overwhelmed by love as well. So there's a kind of a, a knowing that everything can't be known. And it's kind of, uh, one becomes satisfied with that kind of, I want to call it, theistic agnosticism. That's our position honest position, <laughs> logically speaking. And uh, this comes up here, I think, in this chapter, in this section we're going to discuss briefly from tonight. In the first three verses of the chapter, Krishna speaks in glorification of the kind of knowledge that he is going to reveal in this chapter. He calls it Rajavidya, the king of knowledge, Rajaguyam, the most secret of, uh, of secrets. And in many other ways, he, he, he glorifies and describes that type of knowledge. And it, we studied that the last time that I was here, as I say, and it was clear from the words that he was using, susukam kartam avayam, prachakshavagamam dharmam, and so forth, that, uh, that this knowledge that he was talking about was bhakti. It's clear in the beginning, and of course it would become clear as the text goes further, especially at the end of the chapter, it's brought out very directly that what this chapter is about is about love of Krishna. And he considers this to be the be-all and end-all of knowing. So having glorified that knowledge, he begins to speak about it here. And he's going to speak about it in two ways. He's going to speak about the knowledge of the Godhead, knowledge of the Absolute from the perspective of Aishvarya and the perspective of Madhurya. These terms refer to the understanding that promotes a kind of love of Godhead in reverence, in awe. Aishvarya means the opulence, the godliness of the Godhead. The, the things that people would ordinarily think that God should be doing if he's or she's to be God. Extraordinary things. And Madhurya, uh, conversely, speaks about things that the Godhead does that more like what we do, and it means, uh, literally means sweet. So the sweet kind of knowledge, when God acts in a way that is uncharacteristic, if you will, of God in terms of how we would ordinarily think of God, the source of everything, all power, all knowing, omniscience, and so forth, all these type of adjectives that kind of distance us from God in a way like, whoa, he's big. <laughs> and I'm small, he's infinite, I'm finite by comparison and so forth. So when that uh, Aishvarya is suppressed to an extent by Madhurya, by sweetness, by his acting in ways that make him, the Godhead, accessible to us, we call that sweetness. This means this, this is an interesting point, that Mad without Madhurya, how can there be bhakti? Madhurya means sweetness. In other words, and bhakti means the act of sharing with God. Love is a kind of sharing, right? 
So without Madhurya, how can there be bhakti? It means this, that if the God, we know that in, in ordinary sense, theistic people at least, they think, God doesn't need to eat, right? In fact, some people say, why should I give a donation? God doesn't need anything. I keep the money. I need money. God doesn't need money. He has everything. Now, what will you give? The man who has everything. So, the more we conceive of God in terms of Aishvarya, in terms of godliness, then the less opportunity there is to interact with the God. But when Madhurya is factored in, to that extent, then the Godhead becomes accessible. And if we go, for example, if you take Srimad Bhagavatam, the great literature that Sriman Mahaprabhu embraced so closely to his heart, the central text of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we find it's a discussion on the gradation of manifestations of the Godhead and means of relating with the Godhead. There's a whole scale, a whole kind of ladder, as, as played out, for example, in the commentary on Bhagavatam, that more or less, that is, that is Brihad Bhagavatamrita, for example, of Sanatana Goswami. And the further up the, the ladder you go, the more you find Madhuri, and the more you find him accessible. Uh, and in some places he's just sleeping, and, you know, accepting some offering, and giving a blessing, and uh, sitting on a throne, and whatnot. When you get to Vrindavan, the culmination, there he's practically, he, he can't, he doesn't sleep. He's awake 24 hours, and relation to his devotees. He's eating constantly, practically, throughout the day and night, and, <laughs> and very, very human-like, so very much accessible and very endearing to us. So these are the two sides, the Madhurya Gyan and Aishvarya Gyan, that will be discussed here. And they're important. They go together in many respects. We should not think Sri Vishwanath Chakravarti the venerable uh, Acharya of our lineage from centuries past, who commented extensively on Bhagavatam, who commented on the Gita and so forth, and authored some of his own original literature, has made a very strong point in his Bhajan Rahasya with regard to the Madhurya and the Aishvarya of the Godhead and how they're intertwined. He emphasizes that those who think that the Madhurya of Bhagavan, of the Godhead, is the sweetness, is only that manifestation of the Godhead that is devoid of any Aishvarya, don't have a proper understanding. He says that in order for there to be a Madhurya, there must be Aishvarya. So they're intertwined. In other words, if there's no Aishvarya, then what's the Madhurya? If it's not God who's acting in an ungodly way, so to speak, in a way that appears he's needy and so forth and human-like, then there's a lot of human people <laughs> that are acting in those ways and that doesn't make them particularly special. So because he is God, so there must be some Aishwarya in the background. And if we go, for example, to the Brajalila of Krishna, and we do not find more Aishwarya anywhere in Krishna Lila than in the, the Brajalila, the pastoral Lila, cowherding Lila of Krishna, as compared to Mathura, to Dwaraka, and for that matter, Vaikuntha, they expand the Paravyom of, under the jurisdiction of the great Narayan, 
four-handed Narayan who has so many forms and, and from there to the Purushas of the world of Karnadakshai, Garbhadakshai, Shurudakshai, the, the Vishnus, the all-pervading Vishnus, uh, the world of our experiences coming out of and so forth as it's described in the theology. And, and as I start talking about those things, you, your mind may go to like, yeah, those are pretty big guys. They, they're doing some pretty far out things. Uh, the world's, you know, universe is coming out of the pores of their body and, and, and so forth, which means to say universes are small, you know, in comparison to them. They're part of the multiverse, you know, direction that uh, science may be going in, as opposed to one universe idea. But anyway, is a big people. When Kabirish Krishna speaks about Nityananda Prabhu in his Chaitanya Charitamrita, he pens five, six verses, five verses, I think, all about this extraordinary Aishwarya that is only a partial manifestation of the Dinanda Prabhu, that we might understand his ordinariness, unorthodox behavior and context. So, but anyway, my point here is what, that all that grandeur of these Purushas, for example, or Narayanan, all of that and more we actually find in the Brajalila. And it's interesting, interesting to note this because we are all devotees. We have some, uh, most of us uh, have some uh, attraction to the Brajalila of Krishna, Radha and Krishna, Krishna and Ram and so forth, and Gopas and Gopis. And, and now you, if you, you think about the various pastimes of Krishna, you'd be attracted to different ones and so forth. But some of the Aishvarya that's manifest there in the Brajalila is usually not what the devotees find themselves preoccupied with. And one of the prominent examples is the Brahma Vimohan Lila. So everyone likes the Brahma Vimohan Lila where Brahma becomes bewildered in an attempt to bewilder Krishna and he steals all the calves and the cowherds and apparently puts them in a cave for a year and so forth. It plays out over about three chapters of the Bhagavatam, three or four chapters. And the culmination, of course, is Brahma's prayers, which will put the you know most of the devotees to sleep. And there He's explaining and reflecting on the Aishwarya of Bhagavan and this tension in the Bhagavad between Madhurya and Aishwarya that's so wonderfully woven together by the author in a kind of a dance where he's God, but he's not God. He's God, but he's not acting like God, and therefore he's accessible, and, and so on and so forth. In that Leela, Brahma saw Krishna manifest unlimited Narayans from himself and we've said earlier that from Narayan comes unlimited universes. So from Krishna comes unlimited Narayan. It's like mind-boggling. This is a prominent example of the nature, the extent of the Aishvarya that we can find manifest in Vrindavan. And if you look comparatively, there's no more powerful manifestation of the godliness, the Aishvarya of Bhagwan in Krishna Bhakti than in the Brajlila, but we don't think of the Brajlila in terms of Aishvarya, do we? It's just an example of how being influenced by the Brajlila. It's an example of what will happen to you. In other words, in the Brajlila, the devotees see these manifestations of divinity. They see Krishna lifting Govardhan downhill, for example. The whole of the Braj witnessed that, right? But it did not influence their Madhurya their sense of his sweetness. Therefore, the cowherds were all putting their own sticks up there to help old hill and so forth. So in, in the same way that by their prey and by their love, this Aishvarya that's there and, and must be there 
for there to be Madhurya is kind of lost sight of or it's put in perspective, so to speak. It doesn't stand out to them as anything that important or extraordinary. It's the love and the intimacy that's possible by the Madhurya that stands out. So in the same way to all of us, in a little way, this is also happening, you can see. You're not that interested in that part of it, right? <laughs> Sometimes the devotees like the killing of the demons and so forth. <laughs> but you'll get over that as well. So the two, anyway, are important. And, and then I think that also we need to look at the Aishvarya from the perspective of the knowledge that underlies the whole Brajalila, which is our ideal, our point of entry. Again, it looks like a kind of unknowing and ordinariness, but there's knowledge that underlies it, extraordinary knowledge, and underlies it because if it were to manifest fully, it would get in the way of the intimacy. And so it's required for us to have some knowledge, some tatva in order to enter into Madhurya. We have to kind of enter into the, into the soil of that place, be kind of acquainted with the canvas on which the art of Krishna Leela is drawn in order to participate in the Leela. Theoretically, that may not be necessary, you could say. Just sit and hear about the Braj Leela and go there. But practically speaking, we see that without some systematic education, conceptual orientation, some bandhagyan, we call it, that our participation in bhakti is not very fruitful. And, of course, that someone again is not separate from bhakti. It's knowledge about bhakti. It's knowledge about its relational knowledge, and that must be knowledge of bhakti. Bhakti is about relationships, the fact that there are such, that we're in relationship, we have a relationship with matter to an extent. We have a relationship with Bhagwan. Bhagwan has a relationship with matter and with us and what is the nature of that? This is kind of the basic idea. So Krishna, now beginning to speak on the highest knowledge, is going to speak first about Aishvara. He's going to give us an installment in Sambandagyan. He's going to speak about the, in metaphysical terms, the Achintya Veda Ved, as Jiva Goswami named it, Worldview or metaphysics that, that um, explains in philosophical terms what we call Krishna consciousness. It explains the logical necessity for the idea of Leela, for a doctrine of love, and a doctrine of extreme love, as I began. This comes out of the Chinti Veda Veda Tattva. If you study it very carefully, you see, oh, it has to come to Gyan. Shunya bhakti, bhakti that's unencumbered by jnana, by knowing, even by the knowing that God is God, that Krishna is God. It has to come, reach a pitch where that knowledge is suppressed or overridden by affection, by love, to afford intimacy. This all comes out of a Beta Beta, so it's important. I had a discussion some days back, and someone was asking about Krishna Leela, you know, there are a lot of fantastic things that happen in Krishna Leela as it's recorded in the texts. And they don't really kind of fit into our logical framework or, or frame of reference. Extraordinary acts. Krishna kills the demon 
demoness Putina, and she was appearing like a beautiful young lady, and suddenly she became 12 miles long after he killed her and manifested herself as a witch. And, you know, we don't find people, too many people that are 12 feet long, and these types of things. So he wanted to know how to look at these. Do we look at them allegorically or, you know, literally? Did this really happen on Earth? He asked me 5,000 years ago if there were cameras up above, would these things have been, you know, recorded and so forth? You know, a little too much thinking is, is, is a problem here. But then again, we are troubled by that. You know, in the rational Western mindset, we're troubled by the need for things to make sense. It is bothersome. Because why? Things don't make sense. That's a fact. Life does not make sense. It's not a logical affair. If in, indeed, if it's about love, then how can it be? Love transcends uh, reason. Love knows no reason. You know, as I've said many times, by giving, we gain. More so, giving is the gain. But that is not mathematically provable, I don't think. <laughs> In other words, if you have 10 and you give 5, you're left with 5, not 12. <laughs> but uh, our experience is that if we give, we actually gain, we grow. So that's a mystery. And giving, of course, is at the heart of loving. So I want to say that the life moves in this way, progressively. But giving, giving is growing and giving is getting and so forth. And, and therefore, our common sense, everyday experience leads us to believe that life is not necessarily logical. Math is a descriptive language, that's true. I told this to an architect who came to buy some milk from us the other day when I was showing him the temple, whereas poetry is more of a participatory type of language. And he said, well, I, I said math was a, language, a control, language for controlling. He said, well, I think that like, it's actually a descriptive language. So I had to reply, so that's true, it's a descriptive language, but it lends itself to be used then for controlling. It only describes so much. It describes what you can actually see, and there's a lot that can't be seen to life, and so forth. And poetry tries to include that, for example, just to use the languages, and it also tries to speak about that which it also doesn't lend itself to controlling. It's more of a, it tends to expand the nature of the experience, and and so, and Bhagavatam, of course, is, is written in poetry, and poetry is, is a language of love, and, and it's a language to try to speak about that which defies, transcends words, logic, reasoning, math, and so on and so forth. So, I think he appreciated it, but, but at any rate, uh, so, anyway, to know Krishna is to love Krishna, and, <laughs> and to know means... We have to go in a gradual way. So some sambandhagyan is required, some underlying conceptual orientation, relational knowledge. What is our self in relation to that everything else that is? Everything, all things are Brahman, the scriptures say. Kalo idam sarva kalamido Brahma. All things are Brahman. So that means that there are all things and they are all Brahman. It's not that there are no things. There are many things. They are Brahman and its Shaktis and so forth and the relationship. So this is the kind of knowledge that Krishna wants to take us into here. Achintu Veda Veda Tattva. Hmm? 
And as I say, understanding this, we see it, as we understand it, we see it logically leads to this idea of the Brajlila, of a kind of knowing that is an unknowing, a kind of knowing that constitutes love and that leaves behind or suppresses or overrides even the knowledge of God's Godhood. So while the goal is this sweetness to enter there, we have to go through this kind of sambandhagyan, which is not as sweet and a little more complicated and philosophical and you know, kind of brain-stretching and all, but uh, according to your capacity, we should try to do this. The, the Gita seeks to tax our intelligence, and therefore it's said that the study of it constitutes the worship of Bhagavan with one's intelligence. And then the Bhagavatam is there to give a good bashing to the intelligence, to put it in its place at the same time. The Bhagavatam is a good sequel to the Bhagavad Gita. Here the, the basic idea of bhakti is given, and then Bhagavatam is played out, the life of Bhagavan in relationship with his devotees. That's what the Bhagavatam is about. And there, as I say, it's a good bashing of the intelligence with strong statements about jnana bhakti, jnana prayashu eva, for example. This is such a nice verse that Mahaprabhu Chaitanya Dev embraced from Bhagavatam, from the 14th chapter of the 10th canto of Bhagavatam, from Brahma's prayers and the Brahma Vimohan Lila, he says, Gyane Prayashutapasinamanteva. He says, oh, you know, stretching the brain, he had four heads. So, stretching the four heads, my four brains, as far as I can, I get nowhere with this. Seeing you, who you are, understanding you, it's just mind-boggling. I think that to know you, this has to be put aside. Yes, in other words, one has to reach the point like the, the mind, the brain has just been stretched <laughs> entirely, trying to bring it within and realize it's not, it's not possible. One has to short circuit a little bit. Then some, some knowing, become, real knowing becomes possible. Something like that. So, um, so what does Krishna say? He says, Mayatatamidam savam jagadavyakta murtina matstani salabhutani nachavam teshuvavastita nacha matstani bhutani Pashume Yoga Maishwaram. Bhutabrinacha Bhutasto Mama Bhutta. Mamatma Bhutta Bhavanaha. And then he gives an example. Takashas Tito Bayu Nityam Bayu Sarbata Gomahan. Tata Sarbani Bhutani Matstaniati Upadharaya. So these three verses give us the basic idea in a very kind of general sense of Achintu Beda Beda. That means Achintu means what? Inconceivable. Bed means difference. And Abed means non-difference. Bed Abed. So this is a, a term coined by Jiva Goswami in his Satsandarbha. And we find the Beda Beda idea given by Sanatana Goswami in Brihad which is an earlier text and who was a, and he was a senior to, to Jiva Goswami. Jiva Goswami in Playing that out, the teaching of Sanatan, as that he imbibed from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, wisely added the word achintya to the Beda Beda conception, that a worldview that seeks to explain what is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, really, what is his ecstasy in philosophical terms. And this is, as I say, has stayed with us, achintya Beda Beda. So Beda Beda, difference and oneness, and then the inconceivable idea of the two 
simultaneously that things are one and different at the same time. They don't, that doesn't fit together logically. You have the Nimbarka Sampradaya, another spiritual school of Vedanta that says Veda Veda or Dvaita Dvaita says sometimes the absolute is one, sometimes it's different. But Mahaprabhu says, his followers say, no, it's one and different at the same time. And that is a chintya, but it's possible by a chintya shakti, by his inconceivable power, potency, yoga maishvaram, as it's described here. So what, you know, what does all this mean? It's uh, hard to say. <laughs> but Krishna introduces the idea here in the Gita. So our acharyas will take from this and, and say, here's a reference. And where is it found? They're in the very heart of the Gita where the emphasis is, is going to be on Madhurya, we'll find that Krishna becomes very emotional in this chapter. The, the, the middle six chapters of the Gita, Krishna begins to speak about bhakti in a systematic way. Earlier on in the fourth chapter, he spoke about bhakti a little bit. And that's the first place we find him really speaking about bhakti, just a little bit. He's explaining knowledge, Gyan Yoga actually, but he speaks a little bit about bhakti in the beginning, because he starts to speak about how the knowledge that he's teaching Arjuna, the yoga that he's teaching Arjuna, he is the origin of. And so he says, I spoke this a long time ago to the sun god, and the sun god spoke it to Ishvaku and Manu, and so on and so forth. And Arjuna has a question, well, how could you do that? You're sitting here. How could you be way there? And then, so Krishna begins to explain avatartatva, the, 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 the phenomenon of the descent of the godhead into the world. Avatara means avatara, from up, crossing down. So the Godhead coming within our frame of reference for the purpose of taking us out and so forth. So there is where bhakti is first mentioned in the Gita. But here it's being discussed very systematically. But even there, where Krishna just touches, starts to talk a little bit about bhakti in terms of avatar tattva, he speaks so affectionately to Arjuna. You can see he's really a person who's really constituted of, moved by, by love, by devotion. This is what makes him tick. When he begins to speak to Arjuna a little bit about bhakti, he's so, oh, And I can share this with you, Arjuna, because I love you, he said, because you're my friend, because I, I think of you just like myself, like equals feel like that. I have confidence in you. I, I'm close to you. Bhaktusime. You're my devotee. Sakajiti. And my friend, therefore, Asyam. Ki etat uttamam. I can speak about this Uttam Rahasyam. And Uttam Rahasyam is Bhakti. Uttam means supreme. Rahasyam means secret. The highest secret. This is for my friends. People who love me. Again, if you love me, then I'll tell you all my secrets, is, a, is the idea. So, in here, now in this chapter, in these middle chapters, six chapters of the Gita, he's speaking systematically about bhakti. He's speaking about what bhakti is, what it isn't, what is a partial manifestation of what he understands to be bhakti. Bhakti mixed with the desire for knowledge, bhakti mixed with the desire for karma, bhakti mixed with yoga. All these things have been discussed different ways in which people approach him will also be discussed a little bit in this chapter and upcoming verses. But here he really starts to take off in this chapter and he gets very emotional. The more he speaks about bhakti, the more emotional he becomes. And he loses it, really. Krishna really loses himself in this chapter. And he says things 
that make his devotees wonder about him. For example, he's going to say, later on, he's going to say, very famous verse, what does he say? This is like, some of the devotees go, well, I don't know, how are we going to teach this to people? Or if he says that, he says, my devotees, this is how I feel about them. Even if they misbehave, I consider their misbehavior worshipable. And, oh my God, how are we going to talk to people? But a lot of devotees misbehave, and we have to say, you shouldn't misbehave. This verse must be abused, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult. But it really, it shouldn't be, be abused, it should be understood to be an example of the extent to which Krishna puts himself out, how he's, how he's moved, taken by, conquered by, attracted by love. I mean, it's difficult to find in the theistic world a figure who more embodies loving affection than Krishna in all respects. And here in terms of like intimate, friendly, even romantic dealings and so forth, it reaches such a pitch so nothing against any other manifestation of God. Of course, we're kind of inclusivists. You know, we include all other conceptions of God within ours. We feel there's some objectivity to that, of course, and we'd like to discuss it. But we really do have the kind of the heart of divinity here and the idea of of Krishna. And so he gets very emotional in this chapter, and it's about really. I want to say Madhurya. This is its real emphasis. He's going to talk about Aishvarya and Madhurya, but he begins to speak really about Madhurya by speaking about his Aishvarya because, as I mentioned, the two are intertwined. You cannot have Madhurya without Aishvarya. So he's going to, first he speaks here now in a worldly sense. He speaks about sustenance of the world. After that, he's going to speak about the creation of the world and about the annihilation of the world and how, what his part is in all of this, how he's involved and he's not involved, how he's one with it, but he's different from it, how it can't go on without him, but he has nothing to do with it, and all these things. And so it's a little confusing, what he says. It's a little mind-boggling. He says, This entire world is pervaded by me. He says, <laughs> The whole world is, is within me, in my invisible form, in my unmanifest form. Now, how can the world be within a form that's not manifest? It's confusing, he says. <laughs> All created beings are situated in me, but I'm not situated in them. Then he contradicts himself, it appears. And yet beings do not abide in me. He just said they're in him, but I'm not in them. Now he says, but they don't abide in me, all living beings. He says, Pashame Yogam Aishwaram. He tells Arjuna, now Pashame Yogam Aishwaram. See, just see, he said, my power, my achintya shakti, he says. Yogam Aishwaram, my extraordinary godly uh, power, the implication is by which I do things that are logically inconceivable. While I am the sustainer and cause of beings, myself is not contained in created beings. Then he gives an example. He says, just as the air blows everywhere, being always situated in the sky, 
so all beings are situated in me. But there is a detachment, the implication is between the, the air and the sky. Wind blows in sky, everything's within sky, but wind is not attached to the sky or space. How can it be? Space is everywhere. So he says, I'm one with everything, I'm different from everything. Everything's in me, nothing's in me. I'm in everything, I'm not in everything. The world is pervaded by my unmanifest form. This is an interesting idea. There's a number of ways in which it can be understood. In the more general sense, we'll see Krishna speaking about his Aishvarya in terms of his manifestation as the Paramatma, who is the Atma Parama, the oversoul of the world. This is about sustenance. Then, as I said about creation, about annihilation of the world, of the world of our experience. This is not the direct realm of Krishna seated on the chariot speaking to Arjuna or Krishna of the Braj Lila. This is under the jurisdiction of his manifestation as the Paramatma, the Supreme Soul, that Godhead who is poetically described as from whose poor holes innumerable universes emanate, whose dream is the world, the one who becomes many that are all of us out of joy and the, and the world you know, comes into comes into being, and who with his inhalation brings it all back within himself into deep sleep and so forth. This is, wow, these are big activities. So this is Aishvari, he's speaking about it like this. So he's speaking about his Paramatma feature, who is the world is all contained within as the Paramatma who the universes emanate from. Then he enters into them, right? And he enters into every atom of it at the same time. And although he's in it, how is he not in it? Well. What really makes us into something or anything is not our physical proximity to it, right? But it's our attachment to it. We could be here, but not be here, right? Just like if you come in and you look at this place and you, you know, you, you'll see certain things that your eyes contact as long as your mind minds your eyes. Otherwise, you won't see it, right? It requires that there be the object and then there be the sense, for example, sound or, or form to see, and then that the mind has to line up with that in order for us to perceive it. And mind means, to mind it means to be there, you know, to, to be mindful, to be present and so forth. So without that, so the idea is that extend that further by attachment, then we really go there. It's said in the Bible, I've heard, I haven't read it, but I heard this before, I kind of like it that in some respects. He said that if a man looks at a woman lustfully, then he goes there, something like that. Even if he doesn't go there, he's there. It's, uh, he's implicated by attachment, by desire. So we could be even at a distance from a place, but be there, be implicated, so to speak. Or we could be very close, but not be really, really present, be somewhere else at the same time. So Krishna's the implication here of what he's saying in one sense is that he's not attached. He does these things, but he does them kind of dutifully with regard to the world order and so forth. He's an overseer, he's the witness, he's udasin, you know, he's neutral about it. The Paramatma is so depicted. He facilitates our desires, whether they be godly or not. It's up to you, it's what you want, and he facilitates. So he's participating, but not in a way that he's implicated. We're participating, 
and by that participation we're implicated. And so there are repercussions because our participation is based on attachment. And so we remain in the whole affair of birth and death as, it, as the world comes and goes, comes and goes. We, we remain in that. He comes and he goes, but his position is different. So he's in it, he's not in it. Hmm? He's speaking here about living beings. He's speaking here about the material energy. He's speaking of it as being in relation to himself. These are his powers. These are his, his shaktis. They are dependent upon him. In that way, they're not different from him. But at the same time, they can be spoken of as being different from him, like heat and light can be spoken of as related to, but separated at the same time from fire. You can't have fire without heat and light, but we can talk about heat and light at the same time independently of fire. So examples like this have been given to kind of help us conceptualize the idea of inconceivable power. And this is very interesting because the idea of this worldview of Jiva Goswami is that it pervades all things. That all things are like one and different. They have some power. And then, of course, in a bigger scale, the God in relation to his shaktis and so on and so forth. So this is a kind of a general way. And obviously, speaking about it like this is speaking about Aishwarya Gyan, the knowledge of the Godhead's workings of the world. And that's directly what's being mentioned here. But another way of thinking about it, of course, and Bali Bidibhusan does this in his commentary on Vedanta Sutra. When it's discussed in the sutras, that the Godhead is all-pervading, which the very word Vishnu means, all-pervading. I mean, where is he then? He's everywhere. But you can't see him anywhere. Uh, Sridhar once told us that, Pujapad Sridhar that as a young man, an elder uh, relative in the extended family of his was appreciative of his religious leaning, but he thought it was a little extreme. It's good to be religious, but after all, God's like way out there. <laughs> And we're down here, you know, so let's pay attention to our family and friends and things that are important. Krishna says that too, of course, in the Govardhan Leela, but <laughs> that's another thing. But there's some truth to that. But anyway, he, he said, so, you know, the world here, this is of your immediate concern, is, is important. God's there, that's okay, but he's like way out there, so let's put it in perspective, you know. He's like, whoo, you can't even see him, right? So why be so religious? And then Sridhar Maharaj made the reply. He said, you say he's way out there, but I say there's nowhere that he's, he's not. That's my conception. Is there anywhere that he's not? And so his elder was defeated. Sridhar Maharaj became, of course, a great renunciate in the charge and so forth. That's part of the story. You know, religious path as a, and uh, leaning and so forth. And his samskar that took him in that, naturally in that direction. That, that's a sukritivan, that sumedasaha. That kind of fine theistic intelligence that comes from a background in bhakti over over long periods of time, over lifetimes, this kind of idea. So he's everywhere, everything's in him, but he's not there because he's not there in the same way that we're there, attached and fostering the whole thing and so forth and so on. So there's one way to talk about it, but then again, this Aishwarya is required for understanding Madhurya and it must be side by side with Madhurya for Madhurya to really be such. As we explained, so in Bali Bindibhusa, when he's explaining in the sutras the idea that the Godhead is all-pervading, he quotes this verse. And then what does he do? He gives an example. He says, Krishna says, in my unmanifest form, the whole world's pervaded. He takes it to the Brajalila. So here is, the again, the Aishvarya in the Brajalila, 
in the sweet leela of Krishna. That's, that must be there in order for it to be sweet. So we're taken from the paramatma and the world order and so forth and this obvious godliness to the Braj Leela. And what's the example he gives of how the whole world is within the unmanifest uh, form of the Lord? He, the teaching is this, it's very interesting, is that the Krishna's form is everywhere. <laughs> it's like, in other words, the paramatma is inside of Krishna also. It's like the world's. The world of our experience, it comes from, it has a cause, so that the effect is in the cause. And if you say Brahman and Brahman is, 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 is within Vishnu and Vishnu is within Krishna. And it, it's funny because the further we go on that side, on the high side, the smaller it seems to become, doesn't it? Krishna and they say, these friends and these people and it's like time and space and you want to say everything's inside of that. And when you speak about the world, the world seems big, there's so many things to do, so many things to think about, and then some people come and tell us it's really small, it's not worth thinking about. It's just the same thing over and over again. It's just the five senses you know, combining in different ways the same basic elements, and that's why you get bored. Somebody goes, yeah, I am kind of bored. And there must be, maybe there is more to life, and so forth. So then they start interest in spiritual life, and so from the outer small world, not, not, we're not even seeing the world, to speak. we're only seeing the world of our mind. <laughs> we're not even seeing the material world for what it is, we're just getting a small window of reflection of it in our mind. In the citta, vritti, you know, in the yogic terminology, there's a picture that comes on the mind and it, and it shows up in our, in our heart and we, we get some idea of what it's like. So we have small pictures to come out of that is the basic spiritual teaching. Come out of that small picture, go to the big world, of see from outside the, the smallness of your mind and so forth. So it starts getting bigger and we come to Brahman, the idea is this is spacious, infinite, you know, not restricted by form, so big that you can't speak adequately about it, words cannot do justice and so forth, it transcends mind, and mind is big compared to body, right? What you can do in your mind is big compared to what you can do physically. Huge. So many things you can do in the mind, but then to try to do it physically, that's another thing. So mind is not just something between your head. It's a, in the Vedanta school, it's a plane. It's an ontological reality. There's something called subtle matter. And it's big, it's spacious. There's a lot of possibilities that lie there. So from the physical, as Krishna of course says this in the Gita, right? From the, from the senses, from the sense objects to the senses, to the mind, to the intelligence. He's speaking about a material hierarchy. Things get bigger and bigger. We talk about these worlds, Maharlok, Tapalok, Satilok, it's all internal kind of mind stuff, if you will, according to the Vedanta school, the yogic school. These worlds, you're not gonna see them by a telescope. So anyway, as we go bigger and bigger and more spacious, we enter Brahman and everything becomes unlimitedly big and great and accommodating, there's a lot of space, you know, like, wow, there's room to breathe here. But then there's not a lot of affection there either. There's no other that can be experienced. So that's a problem because, again, as I've said many times, we could be in a very small place in the hollow of a tree with someone we love and feel we've got, you know, plenty of room, right? So what's really spacious and accommodating is affection, love. So what we find is that this further description of this spiritual development, we go to Vaikuntha, there's affection there, there's Bhagavan is there, there's relationship with him. 
So it starts to sound smaller. Vaikuntha starts to sound smaller than Brahman because there, again, there are forms and names. And I mean, look at figure. There's a form, and you know, Narayan is here, and he's going to move over here. Well, when he's over here, he can't be over there. It would seem. And so, um, but it doesn't really work like that. <laughs> it's not linear. But anyway, there are forms, and we try to explain well the forms are unlimited. But it's hard to like put that in the in your head. So this is a way to think about it. There's greater affection there. It's bigger in that sense. Now you go from Vaikuntha to the Braj to the pastoral leela of Krishna. So affectionate are the dealings there. Therefore, so big it is. And so specific it is. Raghavakti is extremely specific as to what the prayojan, what the goal is, what the ideal is, where you want to enter, and what family, and in, in relationship with, the, with Krishna, in what particular way, and within that overall sentiment is a in Gopi Bhav or Goba Bhav in particular way is very specific it becomes very refined but specificity is required for love the more you know about someone the more you can actually love them the more vague your conception the less you can show affection so the worlds are really getting bigger and bigger and bigger as you go up although they appear in a sense to becoming smaller therefore Krishna Leela looks just like the small world of our mind I've got my friends and my enemies and I'm attached to my people and when Krishna's family and so forth asked him, what will we be in our next life? He showed them, you'll be in Goloka and all your cows will be there and all your friends and they go, oh, it's great. You know, it's just like ordinary people want, is my wife coming with me and my kids are coming to heaven and then, then, I'll, then I'll go, otherwise I'm not sure if I want to go. So it looks small, we call it aprakrita. It looks like prakrita, like the mundane, but it's Aprakrita. You've gone so far to the left that you're starting to go right. You've gone so far east that you're going west. And this arrangement is there whereby the infinite becomes apparently finite for the sake of that intimacy. So it's really big. So the point is what? That everything is within Krishna. The whole world is within Krishna. Narayana is within Krishna. Vaikuntha is within Krishna. And how does it play out in the Brajlila? Bali Bhutan gives this nice example. He says, what? Krishna's form is all-pervading, just like we found in the Dhamadar Leela. What a sweet idea. The Dhamadar Leela, this is a Leela in the Braj that also shows the such intubated beta idea as it's being discussed in a general sense here. The Dhamadar Leela, Krishna is just a young boy and he misbehaves. It's a long story, but it's sweet. When God misbehaves, that must be play. So we call it play, Leela. So he misbehaves and he's traumatized in that Leela. His mother put him down from suckling her breast just to tend to the milk on the stove uh, just for the sake of some guy named Indra, you know, who wanted some sacrifice for his satisfaction. And Krishna was traumatized by this for his, in his childhood. So later on, when he grew up, he kind of worked that out, that trauma with Indra. That's the Govardhan Leela, where he, you know, he lifted the hill and, and so forth. And, you know, he had to self-assert himself and regain his self-esteem and so forth. So, at any rate, in that Leela, he misbehaves, right? He's put down, so he throws a tantrum, he goes and steals butter and yogurt and splashes it everywhere and gives it to the monkeys, and his mother finds it charming, but he thinks that she's mad at him, so he starts to run away, and she runs after him to catch him, not really to punish him, but to tie him up so that he won't run away. 
because she can't bear the thought of not have you know not having him. So she ties him up, and in the context of trying to tie him up, she takes some rope, and rope is like readily available for cowherd people. If you're a cowherd people, you got to have ropes to lead the cows around and to hobble their feet sometimes for milking and so on. It's very useful stuff. So in their spare time, they said that the cowherd people they make rope. You know, that's what they do. So she brings out some rope and she tried to tie him up to the mortar that was in the backyard. And the rope was just two inches too short. So, meanwhile, the neighboring ladies, who had all complained earlier about her son going and stealing yogurt and butter from them, which she denied and refused to believe, ostensibly, overtly, although she wondered, and on account of wondering, she complained to her husband, you know, these neighbors are all saying that Krishna's going and stealing butter and yogurt in their houses. What kind of coward are you? You're the king of the community here and you can't provide sweet enough milk to keep your son at home. He goes and steals milk, at least they say. He denied it when they confronted her, uh, the neighboring ladies, but she knew there was probably some truth to it. So that's why Nanda had gotten special cows from the herd and put them on special grasses to graze from. And it was that milk from those cows and those grasses that was boiling over on the stove. And that's why Mother Yashoda left him from suckling her breast and put him down to tend to the milk and so on and so forth. But she tried to tie him up with a rope and the neighbor ladies were looking over and saying, just see, now you better tie your son up. You see how mischievous he is. We were right. And so when it was two inches too short, they started throwing rope. Here, here's more rope. And they were very amused, charmed by the whole affair. And no matter how much rope she got, tied it together, it's remained two inches too short. And they got all the rope from Vrindavan. <laughs> and it was two inches too short, two inches too short. So, and Krishna was not getting fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. In fact, he already had a little elastic string around him with bells on it, which was the custom. So that if you didn't hear the bells, you knew the child's out of reach. You've got to go find him. As long as you hear the bell, okay, you know he's around. You don't hear the bells, you think, where are the bells? You better go find him. Because mothers have to attend to other things, you know, while taking care of their children and so forth. So, so he already had something around his waist. So why these ropes couldn't go around his waist? He wasn't getting any fatter and so forth. The implication, Baladev says, is that his form is all-pervading. Everything is actually inside his form. But it takes eyes to see this. And we have to see through the eyes of the Leela. Mahaprabhu's opinion was, let's accept the Leela as it is instead of trying to explain it in a way that makes it either one or different. He's one and different. He's in one place and he's everywhere at the same time. That's the teaching, he said. I know it's inconceivable, so we call it a, by his achinta shakti, it's possible. He goes from place to place, but he's everywhere at the same time. Now, how can you, you know, move from here to there and still be there? Krishna says, just see who I am here in these verses, what I'm like. <laughs> Try to know me is a folly, he said. Try to know me. Here, Pashamayu See my mystic power. I'm there, I'm not there. I'm everywhere, I'm nowhere at the same time. See my, my magic. I don't conform to any laws. I make the laws of nature. I can't change the laws of nature. Just like in science, now we, we know something about the laws of nature, but if we find out there are other universes, we might find that laws are different there. <laughs> well, that everything changes and so forth. And even in science, it's, it is changing. The knowledge of how nature works, in, at one time, it, it was, a, was a, you know, an earth-centered idea, then a, a sun-centered idea, 
we want to come to a consciousness-centered idea, ultimately. You know, it's possible that in neuroscience they may reach a point where they realize, we can't figure this out. <laughs> we can't prove that consciousness comes from matter. We really thought it did, but we just can't do it. And maybe they say, well, maybe it doesn't. <laughs> There's other ways to think about this. Then realize the limitations of math for knowing, of calculation, reason, and so on and so forth, and be relieved, free from that kind of burden of having to know and actually know by loving and so forth. So Baladeva nicely brings Baladeva Bhusan this to the Braj Lila. So here's Aishwarya of the Braj Lila. Krishna's everywhere is what the Lila is showing and in one place at the same time. Madhya couldn't tie him up. And finally, then seeing her effort, of course, then he acquiesced and allowed himself to be tied up. And then Jiva Goswami says beautifully in in Gopal Champu, she took the ribbon from her hair, which was shorter than the original rope, and was able to tie him with that, with her affection. So, I, again, this is, he's, he's saying, I'm everywhere, no one can know me unless I want them to know. I'm here, I'm not here. And Bhakti's like this too. Krishna says, Sarvadharman prityaja mamekam saranam braja. Surrender, come to me, and you go over here and join this group. And then later on, it's, he says, now I'm over here, I'm in this group. <laughs> what do I do? I came over here, I gave all my money, my time, and i got to go over to the, it may happen like that. i got to go over to this group and find him here. Or there's no group, and i got to go find him outside the group. And I thought he was in the group. And, and then every gopi went to meet Krishna at night when they heard his flute. And none of them knew that anybody else was going. I thought, it's just, I guess it's just me. But they got there, and they found... There was a group. They all have this something in something in common. So we have to have this kind of spirit. Actually, Sarvadharma and Pratyaja. We can't say, "Hey, look, you said to come over here. I came over here, and now you're over there. And now you tell me to go over there. We just go over there." And that's the idea. So when we have that kind of spirit, then then we find our group. Then we find the Krishna consciousness group, and it's in every group, right? One is that. It's not in a particular group, but it's the people. There are good people everywhere. There are spiritually advanced people in every sect, in every group. That should be our group, to connect with those people. So, he, he's really throwing this out. Gyanamchunya Bhakti, he's really saying, try to know me is a folly. This is the import here, in, in one respect. Try to know me is a folly. I can change everything in a moment. I can be everywhere, I can be nowhere, I can be in one place, in every place at the same time. I've shown this in my Leela, in Bhagavatam. Like I say, Bhagavatam is a playing out of this whole affair. So this is then an example that I want to conclude with tonight of how this Veda-Veda-Tattva, Achinta-Veda-Veda-Tattva, and this Aishwarya-Gyan, that's, you know, Tattva-Gyan is kind of like Aishwarya, is pertinent to Madhurya, the pursuit of Madhurya, the sweetness of Bhagavan, how it plays itself out not only in an overt sense in relation to the world and creation and sustenance and the knots annihilation and so forth, but also in the Brajlila itself and to a greater extent. Are there any questions, comments? came to mind when you were speaking. In the Bible it says that one has to become like a child to understand God. Mm-hmm. And how, how it is that the child has, sees magic and things child sees, doesn't think logically. And if you tell a fantastic story to a child, they just go, oh, it's wonderful.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. How it is that when we become adults and logical, that then we have to fit everything in place. So how wonderful it is that Krishna manifests these pastimes, but basically challenges that uh, adult mind to develop a child. And he stays always as a child, as a youth. Yeah. In Braj Lila, he's just always never reaches beyond adolescence, which is a very immature <laughs> period in life. Yeah, it's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. Thank you for making that point, that comment. Alongside that, those lines, I was also when you were talking about how we cannot be conceived in the head with the intelligence, and how eventually you, know, you have to put it aside, or it creates like a, like a short circuit. And at that time, what is left but the heart. Mm -hmm. the you can heart be brain dead but still be alive, right? And the heart takes over. I'm talking about you know, standing God through the heart. So this is our school, brain dead bhakti. <laughs> Let the brain burn out, the heart live on, something like that. Mm -hmm. It's such a small thing. I mean, knowledge is such a small thing compared to love. And what is our knowledge? It's so, uh, as sure as we are about something, it's so relative. I mean, even without all this philosophical, theological discussion, you can look at the history of the world see how people were really sure about things and everything was functioning according to that understanding and the whole thing changed. It didn't change, but the perception perhaps, or maybe it did change, who knows? Maybe the world, everything, everything was moving around the earth and then it changed, you can't. <laughs> so uh, go with the change and to be a little flexible as is uh, required. And another point that because we make everything about go around us, like um, the material universe becomes so important. But the material universe is really significant. Krishna has better things to do than just be the God who creates and God maintains mm -hmm. and feels our needs. I mean, that is so insignificant compared to the absolute reality and yeah. the activities of the absolute reality. It's like a canvas if you have an artist and he's painting a picture. And then every now and then he wants to change the color so there's another canvas that he just wipes the brush on. Then he goes back. So that one's the material world we're here. <laughs> and the Leela is the painting he's actually making. <laughs> All right, so let's chant for a little bit.